Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In today's episode, Pastor Heath Bauer is continuing the journey through the 14 ways to being a healthy church. Today's talk is titled, Of Movies and Mowers. If you are in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. Stick around to the end and find out how you can connect with us here at Unity Baptist Church. that anytime a church puts the word of God central and Christ central, that's the kind of church that God is looking to bless. And from what I can tell right now, unity is one of those churches that God is blessing because we are holding to his word. And we're trying to lift up Christ so that a lost world can see how they can have the same kind of eternal life that we have in him. And so I'm excited. I mean, just these last few weeks, we've had SPF going on, reaching uh, out to unchurched children. We've had VBS reaching out to unchurched children. We just had a meeting yesterday talking about our Impact Weekend event that's happening at the end of August, where we're gonna, we're gonna pull up a, a truck for free health checks and free eye clinics and free oil changes and things like that to reach out to our community. Why? Because we just wanna be you know, nice people, humanitarians. No, that's not just it. We wanna meet physical needs, sure, but we want to make sure that we have opportunities to get to the gospel, and if there's one thing this church needs to be known for is that we are a gospel-centered church, that everything that we do has gospel intent. We want to lift up Jesus for the world to see, that they could admire him and to worship him, become disciples of him, even as we are. Well, to do that, we need to do things God's way. Now, we've been studying through, if you will, there's sort of an overarching theme to the sermon series that we've been doing. Don't know if you know this or not, Uh, but we're trying to look at these 14 different characteristics of a healthy church found in Acts chapter 2. We see that after Pentecost, the birth of the church, God is very clear to lay out what all that church did. And one of the things, one of the characteristics we see about that church is that they had all things in common and that they celebrated together with joy and glad hearts and they were a unified group of people. How important is unity to God using a church mightily? It's important enough that Jesus connected unity, you're gonna see later, Jesus is gonna connect the unity of a church to a church's gospel effectiveness. And so for these next couple of Sundays, we're gonna talk about unity at unity. We're gonna talk about what unifies us and how important that is and what that looks like and how we resolve and handle differences of opinions and things like that. So open up to Romans chapter one, not one, Romans chapter 14. Uh, Turn a few pages over, Romans chapter 14. And as you're turning there, I just want to notice that um, every church has kind of its own culture to it, you know, things that are just commonly accepted amongst that group of people. And having traveled around the world, let me tell you, cultures don't just affect groups of people in different countries, but every country's churches has their own unique culture about them too. I don't know if you know this or not. But when we travel to China, there's some things that are kind of unique to the churches in China. Uh, For instance, in China, I don't think I can think of a single individual believer in China that is a Christian uh, who doesn't drink. And, and quite often it's part of their life and part of their culture and it's, it's not frowned upon in any way. But if you smoke a single cigarette, people are going to see you as an unbeliever. Now, is that in the Bible? No, it's not. The Bible isn't talking about that. Now, granted, we can all make a case that it's not healthy for your body and our body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. But let's not exceed scripture. But that, that was just something that was a unique characteristic. Another thing in particular, just this last week, we talked about uh, 1 Timothy 2 and, and women pastors. The Bible's very clear about that. But when you go to China, guess what? Fully, probably half of the churches there are pastored by women. 
Okay, and again, this has nothing to do with sexism. It just has to do with what the Word of God says. But it's seen as perfectly acceptable in China. But you know what's something that wasn't? You can't go down to the Texas Roadhouse and order a rare steak. Why not? Because it's got blood. And the Christians in China, they don't eat blood. Okay, because it harkens back to the Old Testament dietary codes and things like that. So there were things that were unique. Now, does the Bible say you can't order your steak rare? You're worrying me now. Okay, no, okay, so you wanna go down to the roadhouse after church and have a rare steak, you go right ahead. You know, you feel the need to eat blood, I'm not a fan. I order mine ruined, okay, I order it well done. I want a briquette, but you know, you wanna eat that, you have freedom in Christ to do that, but there's, sometimes churches can have things that are unique to their culture where it's not in the Bible per se, but we can teach it as though it is, and that can create problems within the church. When I was a kid, do you know what the big deal was? Movie theaters in the churches that I went to. Now, you could slander somebody all day long with the best of them. I mean, gossip it up all day long, nobody cares. But if you went to a movie theater, everybody was talking about you. You don't go to movie theaters, Christians don't go. I don't know if you guys grew up like that, but that's how I grew up. My wife grew up that way too. Uh, now, having left that home, you know, we, you know, we've seen that you know, what's important is the movies that you watch, not necessarily did you watch it on a VHS or did you go to a movie theater. Myself, you know, I couldn't even go to Bambi. I couldn't watch Star Wars in the movie theater. I had to watch Alderaan blow up on a 20-inch CRT standard definition TV and it wasn't quite as glorious, but that's just the culture that we grew up in. Can you prove from scripture that it's wrong to go to movie theaters? No, you can't. But we taught in those churches, they were taught as though that it was scriptural. And in my 25 years of ministry, do you know what I've noticed? That sometimes as Christians, we can take things that aren't in Scripture, they're personal convictions, and we can elevate them to the level of, of, of Bible so that we teach this right along with the virgin birth. Uh, you know, in all the different business meetings and things that I've been to uh, growing up and uh, even in these last 25 years of ministry, do you know what the biggest church fight I ever saw was about? I mean, the biggest one. People getting angry, people shouting, people storming out the back, slamming doors, and never coming back to the church again. Do you know what it was about? Well, if you can tell by the title, it was about mowers. It was about a lawnmower. We're not arguing about the gospel. We're not arguing about church, you know, biblical doctrine, essential doctrine. They were arguing over lawnmowers. And the argument was, do we buy a new lawnmower or do we just repair the old one? And that was enough to cause believers to storm out of the room. Now, let's be clear. Was the issue really about lawnmowers? No, it wasn't. What was the issue about? It was about control. It was about pride. It was about my own personal opinions. And sometimes that can, we can elevate things to the level of Scripture, and we can get angry with each other and be disunified. And we're going to see this morning that that kind of a thing destroys the work of God. And so we've got to talk about unity at unity. So I want you to see here first that in Romans 14, Paul is going to show us that, you know what, they fought about opinions back then too. You know, our technology may have changed. We may have iPhones now, but the heart of man is still the same. We fight over the same kinds of things. And here, we're gonna see that the, those people, they fought over opinions. Look in uh, Romans chapter 14, beginning of the first verse. He says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Now, when he talks about a person who's weak in faith, your initial perception might be that we're talking about somebody who never goes to church. That's not the case. This person who is weak in faith here is a very religious person. What makes their faith weak? Because the things that they're teaching and believing in aren't found in the word of God. Their faith is in something that's much weaker. It's in the human tradition. 
And so they'll get really upset about things and their consciences will be pricked and they'll feel very strongly about something that isn't necessarily taught in scripture. They've exceeded scripture and the Bible describes that as a person who is weak in faith. Now we're gonna, he says we still gotta have people like that in church. He says welcome them, okay? However, as they come into your church, welcome them but not to quarrel over opinions that there's some things that exceed scripture. The Bible says one thing, but there's personal convictions we may have on top of the Bible. He says, but we don't argue over those kinds of things in a church. He says, so don't bring these things up uh, from your, you know, your religious past. And what he's talking about in particular here in, the, in Rome is remember, Israel had just come out of the old covenant where there were dietary laws. You can't eat shrimp. You know, you can't wear, you know, uh, different blends of materials in your clothing. You can't put an ox with a donkey on a yoke. And you, there's just all these laws that you gotta follow. And, the, and one of the biggies was, they would worship, you know, do we worship on the Sabbath, Saturday? Or do we worship on Sunday? And the Christians were fighting over these things. So he says, you know, to the weak in faith, welcome him, but don't quarrel about your opinions. It's not in scripture, so don't, don't fight about it. What should we fight about? Jude chapter three says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend. It means to strive for, to fight for what? The faith that was once delivered to all the saints. What do we fight over? We fight over the gospel. We fight over the purity of essential doctrine. I'm not talking about, are you a pre-trib, post-trib rapture kind of person? I'm talking about essential doctrine here. He says, that's what we need to fight over. As we've often said here as a church, you can tell what fills a person's heart by what makes them angry. If you get angry over petty things, it's because our heart is filled with petty things. If you get angry over the big things, it's because your heart is consumed with, you're striving for those things which are most important in life. What made Jesus angry? Did Jesus get angry when they pulled out his beard? No. Did they get angry when people slandered Jesus? Did Jesus get mad? No, it says like a lamb before its shears, he didn't open his mouth. Jesus didn't get angry about personal offenses. He didn't get angry about personal feelings about things. What did Jesus get upset for? Flip tables over and, if you will, make a cord, a whip of cords and drive people from the temple for. It's when they were uh, using the people of God to get rich, okay? Not just you know, earning legitimate money for providing a service in the temple, they were gouging them. Think uh, when you wanted to buy a generator a couple years ago during that snowstorm, you know, price gouging. And these people were price gouging the people of God to do what they had to do to worship, and that made Jesus mad. They're hindering the worship of God. That made Jesus mad. Jude, what made him mad? <laughs> when people are perverting the gospel message and people are going to hell because they're trusting in their good works instead of in Christ alone, that made Jude mad. What made Paul mad? Well, if you look at Galatians chapter two, verses 11 to 13, Paul says, uh, there's a time when I confronted Peter to his face. He says, when Cephas, or Peter, he came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Again, don't picture that Paul's getting up in front of everybody and just you know, making a big ruckus here, but he, Matthew 18, he's going to Peter, but he's gonna go right to his face, and he's going to confront him on something. Why would the apostle Paul confront the apostle Peter on something? Because there was sin. What was that sin? He says, before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. Now that doesn't make a, it's not a big deal to you and I. I mean, we are Gentiles. But the Jews normally wouldn't eat with a Gentile until Jesus came and that sheet was delivered from heaven. You remember with that vision to Peter, Acts 10. And then uh, Peter's meeting with Cornelius and now the Jews are eating with the Gentiles. We're one church, we're unified. But there's something that's gonna break that unity in the early church. Do you know what it was? 
says, some men came from James, from, from that ministry. He says, and they were of the circumcision party. He says, before that, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, this group of people from the circumcision party, he says, he drew back and separated himself. He wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. There's division in the church. He says, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by his hypocrisy. That when a person lives legalistically in a church body, it's, they, they tend to make disciples of themselves so that we have a lot of people living and acting hypocritically. Paul dealt with that and he confronted him about this. Why on earth would Peter, the one who, you know, if you will, the leader of the apostles, why would he divide the church over this issue of Jew and Gentiles? It says he feared the circumcision party. What's that? It's not a party where there's circumcision. You don't want to RSVP to that. The circumcision party was a group of people who held to the Old Testament laws rigidly, circumcision and the like. And they said that the Gentiles, if they're gonna come in, they gotta be circumcised and they have to not eat shrimp and they can't eat rare steaks and they can't, and they added all these Old Testament laws and they were creating division in the church to the point where the Jews and Gentiles in the church weren't even eating together anymore. How can that happen? Because a few people of the circumcision party made it so miserable for everybody else, everybody was scared of them, and they wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't dare go against the circumcision party. And so even Peter himself fell prey to that fear, and it divided the church. We don't do that as a church, okay? We follow God's word, and we stay unified. This is what unifies us right here, not the opinions of man, but the word of God. That's what brings our unity. Well, what did they fight over? I want you to see, A, they fought over vegetables. I feel like there should be like a rim shot here. Pat, you wanna come back up here? I mean, what, what, this is like a joke, really? A, the early church, we read about Pentecost and thousands coming to the Lord and you're fighting over vegetables? But that's what it says, look at verse two. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person, remember, that's a person who has a weak conscience, it's easily offended about non-biblical issues. He says one person believes he can eat anything, but the weak person eats only vegetables. Now, why are they fighting over vegetables? This needs some explanation. Remember in those days, there were false temples everywhere. I mean, especially, remember, he's writing to the Romans. Decadent society there. And so often there would be meat offered in conjunction with sacrifices to false gods. And if you would take that meat and you would eat in front of this idol and you would commune with that deity. Well, as any local business, you sometimes get a surplus. And so you would take that meat that you didn't use in the temple and you'd sell it off in the open market. Well, some of these Christians coming by and they're like, hey, there's a good deal on meat down there. You wanna get some meat? Okay, and so they're like, hey, this is cheap. I'm gonna order this meat. And so they take that home and they eat it freely. And by the way, 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses this issue. They have freedom to do this. Idols are no thing. What made that sin was if they go into the temple to eat the meat to commune with the false god, but they weren't doing that. They just said, hey, discount. And they go home and they eat this cheap meat, and Paul says there's nothing wrong with that. But there were some Christians who had hyperactive consciences. And so they would get offended. They're like, if this meat was ever associated with a false god, I don't want it. If this meat was ever in a temple, I don't want that. And so they would, not only did some of them not eat the cheap meat, they wouldn't eat meat at all. They're like, I'm gonna be a strict vegetarian because I just can't tell what meat was uh, part associated with the temple or not. So I'm just gonna avoid all this meat altogether. I'm just gonna eat vegetables. And, and, but the problem was, they started imposing that opinion on other people. Now, if you were somebody who just to be safe and you just felt like to honor God, you don't wanna eat that meat, you have the freedom to do so. 
That's a personal conviction. It's not in the Bible, but it's personal. And if you want to live that way, that's okay. You're honoring God in your own way there. But the problem was when they were trying to impose that on others, I don't believe you should eat it, and I don't believe you should eat it either. And then that became contentious within the church. So he says in verse three, let not the one who eats the meat despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains from eating meat pass judgment on, uh, on the one who does eat because God has welcomed him. And then he says, who are you to pass judgment on the, service, on the servant of another? He's, he's, bringing, he's, he's kind of reminding us, don't think so highly of yourself that everybody has to look and act like you. Who are you? Who are you to impose your opinion and your will upon other people and your personal convictions and to teach them like gospel? Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. In other words, you're gonna find that if you really wanna come push to shove here, that what they're doing isn't wrong. You can't substantiate your criticism of those meat eaters with scripture. You can't do that. He will be upheld. So where he says we're not to sit in continual criticism of other believers over areas where God's word hasn't clearly spoken or where it has and it's given us freedom. We're gonna see B, that they fought over worship times. At least nobody ever does that today. That was a joke, by the way. Uh, verse five, he says, one person esteems one day better than another, while one another esteems all days alike. Remember the Jews here, as they're gathering together for worship, in the Old Testament, what day of the week did they worship? Saturday, it was called the Sabbath, the seventh, okay? And so it had been that way, if you will, since creation. God created the earth in six days, and on the seventh day, God rested. Not because God was tired, he was setting an example for man to follow. Now, if you had been observing the Sabbath, the seventh, since the dawn of creation, and then all of a sudden Jesus comes, and then the day that he rises on Sunday, the Lord's day, uh, and you have these Christians who start meeting on the Lord's day to differentiate their worship from legalistic Judaism, is that gonna create a problem in the church? What day should we worship? Should it be on Saturday? Can a Christian legitimately worship on Saturday? You know, that's the question. Or can they legitimately worship on Sunday, a day that we've never done it before? That was a huge problem in the early church. What we're gonna discover is he's gonna say, it doesn't matter what day of the week you worship, as a believer, we, every day is a day of worship for us. Every day is a day that we live for God and that we extol his greatness and we worship him in prayer and in song and in reading his words. So, but they fought over worship times. How's he gonna respond to this? The last part of verse five, he says, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. If you believe that you need to worship on Saturday, it's okay, worship on Saturday. If you believe it's better for us to worship on Sunday, the day that Jesus rose from the dead, and to isolate ourselves from legalistic Judaism, then go ahead, but be fully convinced in your own mind. The Bible doesn't specifically lay it out that we have to do things in a particular prescribed order. And then he gives us the reason why. He says, the one who observes that day, you know, you, you worship on Saturday, you worship on Sunday. The one who observes that day, he does it to honor the Lord. The one who eats, he eats meat. He does it to honor the Lord since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, the one who does not eat meat, he says he abstains also in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to the Lord. What he's showing us is what is most important about these non-revealed areas, things that aren't explicitly scriptural, you have freedom. Exercise that freedom. But what you don't have the freedom to do is to impose your understanding, your personal convictions on other people. Understand that when they do what they do, they're trying to honor the Lord. 
And that's what really matters. God looks at the heart. He didn't look at the outside. He didn't look at your life and say, well, you know, is, uh, is Jamie eating meat today? I'm kind of displeased with Jamie. You know, Amber ate only vegetables. I'm happy with her. That's not what he's talking about. He says, what, whatever you do, make sure you're doing it in the honor, to honor God. The Bible tells us whether you, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Where's your heart? So, but they fought over these things. <clears throat> he says, some observe the Sabbath and they honor God, some don't. But in the end, it's okay if people don't look like you. Because who are they supposed to look like? You and me? No. They're supposed to look like Jesus. And God gives us often greater freedoms to express our worship to him than man will give us. Verse 7, he says, none of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. Life isn't about us. For we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we're the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be both Lord of the dead and the living. Who's the Lord of the dead and the living? It's Jesus. What does it mean to be a Lord? It means he's the one that's over someone. He's the one who makes the rules. He's the one who judges. Are we that? Are we the Lord? No, but sometimes we act like it, and we judge both the dead and the living. We determine whether or not they're walking with God based upon a, a personal preference of ours. The Bible says we're not to do that. That leads us to number two. We're not to judge other people's opinions. Look at verse 10. He says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? Now, when he's talking about past judgment here, this needs clarification. Now, if you read through Matthew 7, you read Galatians 6, you're going to find a different kind of judging. Remember that passage everybody knows, even lost people? You know, judge not, lest you be judged. Read that passage further. It's actually not condemning judgment of sin. It's condemning hypocrisy. Don't be guilty of the thing that you're telling somebody else not to do. He says, first remove the beam out of your own eye, and then you'll be able to see the speck to help your brother remove that. That we don't just watch other believers living in sin and say, oh, well, you know, it's okay. You know, this guy's going home and beating his wife every week, but judge not, you know. We help that family. But he says, Galatians 6, 1 even says, you see a brother overtaken in a trespass. There's a sin that's just bogged him down. They're living in addiction. They're living in struggles and trials. It says, don't just look at them and say, well, judge not. It says, you come alongside that person. He says, you who are spiritual, if you're truly related to God, you're walking with him, restore such a one, but with a spirit of meekness and fear. Not criticism, not judgmentalism, love. So even when there is that proper Christian judging where you're just helping people out of sin, it's done with meekness and fear. We do it with love. But that's not the judgment he's talking about here. He's not talking about judging someone's behavior as sinful or not sinful. It's when Christians are judging one another over personal opinions, how we apply scripture. Why shouldn't I reject Christians? And by the way, if you notice here, he says, why do you pass judgment? But then what does he say? Or why do you despise your brother? It's a word that means to scorn them, that we talk about them. Can you believe that Jamie eats meat? Boyd, I just can't understand why Jamie eats meat. Boy, thought he walked with God. You know, and we scorn them. That if we push our legalistic standards off on people long enough, it goes from disagreeing with them to despising them. I don't even like Jamie. By the way, I love Jamie. But you know, he's right in front of me. And so you sit in the first few rows, you know you're gonna get picked on. But, you know, that's, that's how Christians can be, that if we believe in our legalistic standards long enough, eventually we start to not just disagree, but we start to despise and we scorn people who are different from us. I can't believe they went to the movie theater, you know? And so it becomes a problem. 
He says in the middle of verse 10, he says, why don't we do this? He says, because we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me, every tongue will confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of who? Himself to God. I don't give an account for what you guys do. I do give an account for myself. He says, therefore, because of this, because you and I will both stand before God in judgment one day, don't pass judgment on, the, on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Because I'm gonna be judged by God someday, I don't need to be judging you right now. God's gonna take care of you. If there's something wrong, he's gonna take care of that. Again, we're not ignoring sin. We're talking about preferential things in life. Do you go to movies or not? You know, do we repair the mower or not? Um, and, and, there, and there's all kinds of other issues. For us, it's not usually meat offered to idols. Y'all just, all you guys care about is how the meat was prepared. You know, we have a brisket, Rick, you know. Or, but meat to idols isn't a big deal to us, but there's a lot of things that are. Do we sit in pews or chairs? Would you believe there's some churches who split over that issue? Do we sing, you know, using PowerPoint or do we sing with hymnals? There's churches that have split over that issue. Should a mother breastfeed or use formula? There are women who will go to the mat on that issue. Do you homeschool or go to school? You know, do you wear suits and ties or can we let a fellow wear a polo to church? There are churches who will divide and split over these, these petty things. He says, who are we to be judging people on these, these secondary issues, these applications of scripture when God is gonna judge us? On, on areas not revealed by scripture, we, we live and let live. We show love to one another. So why is it that we actually do this? Why do, we, why do we elevate our application of scripture to the point where we judge one another? Because sometimes tr there's truth and there's perceived truth. There's reality and then there's perceived reality. In verse 14 he says, I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. You can eat whatever you want. You wanna have little Debbie's, go ahead. Don't let anybody judge you. You know, you wanna go over here, you wanna have meat, go ahead. You wanna have the fatty part of the meat, you wanna have ice cream after you know, church, it's okay. He says, I know and persuade in Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. In other words, some people may have a hyperactive conscience that they have put biblical conviction on things that aren't biblical areas. But to them, it feels very biblical because it's what they grew up with. In the Jews' case, it's because all of their teachers before them taught them this way. And the teachers weren't teaching the word of God, they were just teaching the opinions of the rabbis. And so that became an issue, and because the rabbi taught it, I believed it because I respect that rabbi, and so now I'm gonna follow this religious tradition forever, and I'm gonna pass it on to everybody, and I'm gonna judge everybody who didn't live according to this rabbi's expectations. The Jews, by the way, were masters of making laws where God did not. Do you know what the rabbis would debate over? And often it was over the Sabbath and what can you do on the Sabbath? Do you know one of the debates was within the uh, early days with the rabbis? Can a man wear a needle in his robe on the Sabbath? You see a needle is, you know, let's say maybe you didn't have time to sew it up and you have like a needle there or something, you kind of put it in there. But a needle is an implement of work and you're carrying around a tool now, therefore you're, you're working. Okay, and so they debated this. Here's a fun one. Can a man wear an artificial leg on the Sabbath? Can you try, can you imagine us enforcing that one? Somebody comes with a wheelchair, we're like, wait, 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 wheelchair's gotta stay out, that's work. But they debated over things like this. Here's a fun one. Can a woman put in her false teeth on the Sabbath? Why not a man, by the way? Maybe it's because men didn't live as long as the women, didn't have enough time to get false teeth. But can a, can a woman wear false teeth and put those in on the Sabbath or is that work? 
Ladies, by the way, if you have false teeth, we're grateful you have them. Wear them to the glory of God. We're not going to judge you on that. But somebody did. Somebody was criticizing people over that. Here's one thing they all agreed on, though. You cannot take a rope and put a knot in a rope on the Sabbath because that's breaking Sabbath law. That is work. Okay? But they couldn't enforce that very long. Because guess why? Because there were ladies under their robes, they would wear these girdles and cinch each other up. You know, they were concerned about fashion and looking good in those robes back then too. And so, but some of these girdles required you to make a knot in the girdle. So what do you do now? Because now it's not lawful to put a knot in anything that's work. So they took it to the rabbis and the rabbi says, you know what? No, a woman can put a knot in her girdle and that's okay. So we understand we want you ladies to look good. But then people began to abuse that. Let's say you need to get water out of the well. What do you do? You can't make a knot in a rope to put it on a water pitch, pitcher and put it in the well. So what do you do? Here's what they would do. They'd get their wife's girdle. <laughs> and they would tie one end of the rope onto the girdle and the girdle onto the water pot and they'd made two legitimate Sabbath knots and they would put the water in the well and bring up the water. This is what happens when the church lives in legalism. We start making crazy laws and then we look for ways to get around those crazy laws because we realize they're crazy but nobody wants to say it. But that kind of stuff happens. So Romans 14 is driving to this. Understand what's biblical, understand what's tradition. Understand what God has clearly said is right and wrong and understand what man has applied. How he applied that scripture as a personal conviction. And then no matter how you live, give each other grace. Live in love. Number three, we see pursue peace. Look at verse 15 and 16. He says, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. You know, if you're flaunting to him, you bring, a, you bring one of those vegetarian brothers over and you serve him prime rib and say, brother, it's time you get over that vegetarianism and you need to eat this prime rib with me. He says, don't grieve him. He says, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Don't hurt people to try to impose your will and your application of scripture on people. He says, so do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. Don't flaunt your freedoms in front of other people. He's saying... A, don't be willing to be inconvenienced on behalf of others, okay? Don't flaunt your freedom to them. Uh, in our particular case, growing up, Amber and I, we both grew up with parents that did not go to movie theaters. When we got married, we looked at it, we looked at God's word, and we said, well, that really doesn't differ much from you know, watching a VHS at home. In fact, there's more accountability, if you will, by going to the theater. Uh, so you know, we're like, I believe that as long as you go to the right kinds of movies, a theater is just fine. It's not a biblical issue, it's an application issue. So we went to movies, but guess what we did not do? We didn't come home from the movie theaters and walk in front of my mom and dad and go, hey, look what we just went to. <laughs> you would have had fun too, but have fun watching it on your standard definition CRT at home. You know, we didn't do that. We wouldn't flaunt our freedom in front of our parents. Our children would. We go out, take our kids to see Toy Story years ago, and what are they, what's the first thing they do? We go out for, for church, we go out for lunch with our, grand, with our parents, and our kids go like, hey, mom, we just went, or, hey, Nana, we just went to Toy Story at the movie theater. It was so great, you ought to go. See, children might do that because they don't understand that's not loving. Uh, but as adults, we don't do that. You know, for instance, you know, and this, I know this is a sticky one. Uh, I don't drink, I'm a teetotaler, never have drank, never will drink. But in scripture, there's no explicit command. You, thou shalt not ever drink a drop. I, search the scriptures. Now there's warnings against the dangers of it. There's commands against drunkenness. That is forbiddly, you know, forbidden, it's expressed as a sin. However, if you feel you have the freedom to drink, we don't wave that in front of people and say, hey, you wanna have a wine with your fettuccine? We don't do that. 
If you choose to do that, that's, that's between you and the Lord. I don't. And, but if, if, that's your, if you feel like you have a sense of freedom there, don't you be rubbing that in the face of other people. In a very real sense, that is our, it's one of our meat issues. Jesus himself says in Matthew 15, 11, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man. Quit worrying about so much about what you eat or drink. What is it that defiles a man, did Jesus say in Matthew 15? It's what comes out of your mouth. Forget about just observing everybody and what they're eating. Watch what you're saying about people. Are you speaking loving words? Are you speaking kind things? Are you, is your mouth full of grace? Or is it full of criticism and judgment? We gotta be careful there. We're gonna say B, that when we, when we pursue peace, we make re- repeated attempts at peace. Verse 19 says, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. You can always tell a person who wants God's will in the church, they're the ones who are always pursuing the peace. They're trying to bring people together. He says we are to pursue what leads to, to peace and to mutual upbuilding. I'm trying to do what's, what's best for, for the church. I'm trying to do what's loving for you. He says, but we have to pursue that. Is peace in any institution something that just happens automatically? Do you have a good marriage by accident? No, you all work hard at it. Some of you harder than others, okay? But you, we work hard at peace. You know, when we have peace in the home, it's not accidental. When we have peace in a church, is it just because that church is full of a bunch of perfect people? No, it's full of a bunch of people that are imperfect, that hurt one another sometimes, but we pursue peace. When you think of this word pursue, it means to strive after, to go after something. Uh, think of a hunter. You're sitting up in your deer stand and you shot a deer, or if you're living in Kentucky, you opened your bedroom window and you shot the deer out your window because they're everywhere. But you shoot this deer and you, you hit him, but you didn't drop him in one shot and that deer kind of you know, wanders off into the forest, this 12-point buck. What do you say? Oh, well, he got away. I'll wait for the next one to come along. We don't do that. A, a true hunter, he's gonna pursue that deer. He's gonna look for the tracks. He's gonna look for the blood. He's gonna look for where it is because he's gonna pursue that until he has venison on the table. That's what we do. That's the idea here. We don't just try one time to make peace with somebody and let it go. We pursue it, we track it, we, we pursue someone. T- we, as the Bible tells us, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. That's what it means to pursue. We pursue others in peace like Jesus did us. Jesus says he left the 90 and nine of the flock and he went and found the one sheep that was lost. He pursued and we pursue one another in love. When we know there's an issue, Maybe you're not mad at them, but you know that they're mad at you. Who's responsible? We both are to get it right. And we pursue one another in love. It's what true Christians do. In Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins with the Beatitudes, a description. Here's what a true believer looks like. A a true believer isn't a true believer because they signed a piece of paper, they walked an aisle. A true believer is somebody who's been converted from the inside. And he said one of those descriptions of a true believer is that they are a peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers. That's how you can tell somebody's really seeking God's will in a matter and not their own. They're seeking peace. They do it peacefully. They do it in a loving way. They're trying to reunite people together. It's what describes a true believer. We're going to see C, that fighting destroys God's work. In verse 20, he says, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Don't for the sake of your preferences, the fact that I want to eat shrimp or the fact that I want to eat this meat that I bought cheaply, don't, don't flaunt it in front of people and therefore destroy the work of God. Don't create problems amongst one another for those preferences. He says, everything is indeed clean. You might be right about that, but it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble in what he eats. 
Okay? We, don't want, we don't want to trip people up. We don't want to cause them difficulty and trouble just because I believe that I have a, a certain right to do this or to eat this meat. He's saying that disunity is not a small matter. Disunity actually causes people to stumble. And furthermore, we can take it far enough, he says, that we destroy the work of God. Who else said that? That disunity destroys the work of God. Jesus said that. I keep bringing this up because it's just such a good passage. There's only one thing that Jesus really prayed for us in John 17 in what we call his high priestly prayer. Jesus gets done, he's praying for his apostles because they're all about to go out and be martyred except for John. And his life's gonna kind of stink too. He's gonna be exiled on an island. So he prays for them first, but then he says, I'm now gonna pray for everybody else. He's gonna pray for you and I. And he says this in John 17, 20. He says, I do not ask for these only, my apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and I. What's he praying for us? That they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be one in us. He's praying for that Christian unity, that we see ourselves as a unit, as a body. We do what's best for the body, not what's best for me. Now, even with your physical body, that's how it works, right? When you know your body is working in unison with itself, it will protect itself. Let's say you're skiing down a hill or whatever, and, and uh, all of a sudden you go to fall down. What's your natural reaction gonna be? You know, you're gonna put your hands out. But that's gonna hurt your hand. Why would you put your hands out to hurt your hands? Because if I don't, my hands don't do that, you know, I'm gonna end up like bruising my liver or something. And so I put my hands out and my hands are inconvenienced for the sake of the body. My hands get hurt, they get wounded, maybe even broken. Then why did I put my hands out? To protect the rest of the body. You're thinking about what's best for the body, not just what's best for me. That's when you know you're thinking as one. And that's what Jesus is praying for for us as a church. That we would think as a body, not just of what's best for me, coming to church to consume, how can I make this church something that pleases me, but how do we best work within the body to, to reach a lost world? And so when a believer can do that, we see that, the, that Jesus is genuinely within them. And then when the lost world sees that, they're going to believe your testimony about who Jesus is. He says, he says may they all be one so that the world may believe that you have sent me. When a church, when the world comes into a church and they see fighting, are they impressed with that? They're not impressed with that, by the way. Uh, they're like, I can go home and see that. <laughs> I can go to my workplace and see that. I can go shopping over at Walmart and see employees fighting. I can go anywhere in the world and see people fighting for what they want. But when they come into a church and they see people from all different ages and all different ethnicities and all different backgrounds, but we can come together and we can be loving and unified with one another, that's impressive. Remember, the Bible says, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He says that increases our gospel effectiveness. When the world sees a unified church, they come in, they say, surely God is among you. Tell me how I can know Jesus. The opposite is also true. When we're just fighting over personal preferences and man-made laws rather than fighting for the sake of the gospel, people die and go to hell because they don't believe our message. You know, back in 1992 in Tel Aviv, Israel, there was a certain Orthodox Jewish neighborhood and there was this, these large apartment complexes because, you know, ever been to Jerusalem? I mean, these houses and things are close together. So there's this apartment and it starts on fire. What do you do if you see an apartment on fire? You call 911, or in Israel, I don't know what it is, 411, 311, 385, I don't know. They call something, they call the fire department, and you call them in, and they will put out that fire. Here's the problem, it's an Orthodox Jewish neighborhood. Everybody there 
strictly follows not just the Bible, but what the rabbis tell them to do. And the rabbis tell them, you can't make a phone call on the Sabbath. Well, this fire was on the Sabbath. And so now you got this conundrum. Do I willfully disobey my rabbi? Because by the way, the Bible doesn't say you can't make a phone call on the Sabbath. Do I willfully disobey my rabbi and let people die and burn? Nope, I better go find the rabbi. I can't even call my rabbi, by the way. And so you've got to go down, hey, have you seen the rabbi? Have you seen the rabbi? What's going on? I just need to see the rabbi. And you find the rabbi finally, and you talk to him, and you say, hey, apartment's on fire. Can I call the fire department? (laughs) And then he says, I don't know. Let me think about it. And so he goes back to pray, if you will, for 30 minutes, deliberating on whether or not you can call the fire department on the Sabbath to save lives. And while they were doing that, the fire spread to two other apartment buildings and they burned down. Does that strike anybody else as odd? Is that a disturbing story to you that their exercise of their religious traditions caused people to die in flames? But if you will, that is the legalistic church. We're so busy fighting and arguing over politics and how we govern ourselves, or we fight over pews versus chairs and hymnals versus screens, or suits and ties, or whether the guy can wear a polo in church, and we argue over tiny little budgetary things, and while we're arguing over these little things, the fires of hell are spreading from neighborhood to neighborhood and consuming our friends. That should bother us. why Jesus wants us to be one. We fight over the right things. We, we earnestly contend for, we fight for the faith. We don't fight for personal preference. And so we're going to see here, D, keep personal convictions personal. You're a lot happier if you just, you know, if it isn't especially said in the Bible, keep it to yourself. He says, uh, the middle of verse 22, blessed or happy is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. In other words, if you want to eat meat, Don't worry about the people who say you shouldn't. Just make sure you're right with God. You'll be a much happier person if you're not trying to live for the pleasure of other people. Have you ever, have you learned by this age that you can't please everybody? You can't. Who do we need to please? We need to please God. And if you know that your life is pleasing to God, do we really need to worry about whether or not our life is pleasing to other people? We don't. You will stand before God. You're not gonna stand before somebody else. And so you live a much happier life by not trying to live for the approval of people who are never going to fully give it. And then verse 23, he says, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Okay, he's talking about someone who doesn't eat meat, but he feels like, well, maybe I should. I feel convicted in doing it. I feel wrong for doing it. I feel like I'm dishonoring God by eating this meat. He says, don't eat it then because the eating is not from faith for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. If your conscience is pricked by it, he's saying don't push past your conscience personally. If you feel like you can't honor God and eat the meat, then don't. It's okay to make those kind of decisions for yourself. We just don't get to make those decisions in non-revealed areas for other people. How do we become a happy, unified group of people? We follow God's word in the areas that aren't expressly written in scripture. We give people freedom to exercise their faith as best they know how to honor God. I know God is pleased with me, and I'm a joyful person. And for the person who feels, you know, bullied or pressured into something, don't do it if it's not by faith. But don't worry about whether or not you're disappointing other people. Now, some of us here, if you've been in church for any length of time, we'll close out here. If you've been in church for any length of time, you might have had a difficult experience. Because the truth is, any institution where humans are at, is there a potential for a difficult experience? 
You can have a bad experience going to see a, a Reds game. Some guy spills beer on your kid and is cheering, you know, and, and people get angry and hot-headed. Are you gonna never go to a Reds game again? It depends if they start winning or not, right? Uh, it, you know, we have bad experiences at restaurants. I can give you a bunch of them. When we lived in China, I mean, we have a bunch of stories of how things didn't quite go right when we went to, out to eat to a restaurant. I'll just tell you one story and we'll be done. We went to a restaurant, a, a local uh, just kind of chow side place, the, the uh, stir fry. And we had a long, long morning of learning language and Mandarin Chinese learning is hard. It's a tough language. But we get done, we like, I don't even wanna make lunch. Let's just go get lunch. So I went out and I, I ordered to go some uh, Kung Pao chicken on rice. Pretty simple. We get it home, we put it before us, we open it up, and we discovered there's something in there that doesn't belong. And it wasn't a bug. To me, it was more disturbing than a bug. There was a smoked and stubbed out cigarette, stir not just added to, but stir fried into my Kung Pao chicken. Now, for the life of me, my mind is thinking of every possible way that a smoked, stubbed out cigarette can end up in my Kung Pao chicken. And, and the, I mean, the best scenario I could come up with is that they had smoked it, dropped it on the floor, stubbed it out. They had thrown some hot peppers, some landed on the floor, and they swept it up maybe in there later on, and somehow it ended up in my food. And that's the best. That was giving them the benefit of the doubt. And so I was disturbed by this. And I went Matthew 18. I went, <laughs> I went right back there, and I confronted them to their face to the kitchen. I said, there's something in here that doesn't belong. <laughs> I'm gonna let you figure out what that is, you know, and we, but I talked to them directly. Uh, but here's the moral of that story. We didn't stop eating out in China just because we had a bad experience or two or three or five. Uh, we didn't do that because, because you don't do that. We can't just pull out of life and say, you know what? I'm never gonna leave my apartment. I'm never gonna go out to a restaurant. I'm never gonna go to a Reds game again. But sometimes we feel the need to do that with church. You might even be listening online right now and like, I'm glad to listen to the church online because I don't wanna be present in church myself. Can I encourage you, come back to church. You have bad experience, we've all had bad experiences, but we do that within family. You probably had some bad experiences with your mate, but thank God you didn't leave them. You probably had bad experiences with your kids, but you didn't drop them off at the fire station. Might want to. What it's saying here is that a loving individual will get past our little bumps and bruises. We don't leave churches over little things. We don't stir up trouble over little things. We let little things be little. And then we show grace, we show kindness and love to one another because when we do that and the church sees that we operate as one unit, he says, then the world will believe that you have sent me. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you this morning as we study through Romans and we just talk about our preferences and we talk about what is truly biblical and tr what's truly doctrinal. I pray that no matter where we land on the spectrum of beliefs as a church, these applications of scripture, sometimes these personal convictions, that we wouldn't elevate them to the level of doctrine, but that we would allow people free expression of their faith not disobedience to God's word, which is a different issue, but God, help us to let people live and let live and, and, and express their faith and honor God in a way that, that they feel honors him. And let's have grace with one another so that when the world comes in here, we may not all agree with one another. We may not look like one another, but we behave and act as a single body united by a single head in Jesus Christ. And in doing that, God, it's my sincerest prayer that when the world comes into Unity Baptist Church, they'll find that we live up to our name, that we are a unified bunch of people who, though we're different, we're the same in Christ, 
and that they will see a love that began in Jesus, was planted in our hearts, and unifies all of us for the purpose of the gospel. God, would you grant that to us, a unified church, family, and body. May you be pleased with that, and may lost people, when they come into our presence, see that love and respond in faith to our Lord. We ask this in Christ's name. Thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to make a decision to ask Christ into your heart, click on the link in the show notes and we will be able to help you find your way to Jesus. If you enjoyed today's message, give our podcast channel some love by liking and subscribing to it. And as promised, if you would like more information about Unity, you can connect with us at unitybaptistashland.com or on Facebook at UBC Ashland. Thank you for spending the day with us. We hope that you have a blessed day.